Today's show is sponsored by GoCD, a continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD helps your team release software more frequently, consistently, and reliably. Download and use GoCD for free. Visit gocd.org slash recode. Today's show is brought to you by MParticle. It's the only customer data platform built to address modern data challenges. For most brands today, customer interactions are spread across a lot of connected devices, and that makes it tough to create optimal experiences and drive the right marketing outcomes. That's why brands like Spotify, Venmo, and Airbnb use MParticle. It lets them unify customer data into a single customer view. Then they can easily integrate that data into any marketing or analytics platform with no additional engineering time required. The result is more personalized customer experiences on websites and in apps, as well as more relevant ads across all channels and partners. Visit mparticle.com to learn how mparticle can help your business unify the customer experience and accelerate growth. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who makes trouble for a living, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. Today in the red chair is Leslie Berlin, the historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University. She's the author of a new book called Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. It's about seven exceptional men and women who are pioneers of today's technology in the 1970s and early 1980s. Leslie, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks. I like a little history. I'm, I'm a history buff and stuff like that. And it's nice to actually talk about olden times. I've got a lot of issues with the current regimes. So um, let me talk about your background. How did you become the historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University? And then what the hell are they? Yeah, absolutely. I started out um, at Stanford to get a PhD in history. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to do 19th century race relations and just decided, oh, the really interesting... 19th century, not 20th century. A lot went on in the 20th century. Absolutely. Yeah, but 19th century is really interested in sort of like, well, slaves got freed, then what happened? Um, And I ended up just looking around and deciding, wow, the action here right around Stanford was so interesting. And at that point, people weren't really studying it as a historical phenomenon, no, even though it goes way back. You know, yeah. They think of it as ephemeral in a lot of ways. They don't care about history, I guess. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I finished the PhD, I actually got a little entrepreneurial myself and convinced Stanford to create a position for me to be the historian for these archives that already existed. Mm-hmm. And the Silicon Valley archives are the really the greatest collection in the world of old notebooks and videos and n- different sorts of pages of notes and memos. And it's just incredible. It's like a time machine. Where back. did it come from? Where was, where was it started? Because I, I, just so you know, I have a lot of stuff you might want. But um, what, what um, how did it come into being? Did they just start collecting it or what was the... Yeah, absolutely. The origin was, well, what did Stanford have to do with launching Silicon Valley. So mm-hmm. it started out with looking at the that link. Um, mm-hmm. And very quickly, people realized, well, this is a, so much more of a story than just the Stanford story. Mm-hmm. So it's just grown and grown and grown. Because a lot of companies started from Stanford students or at on Stanford's campus. Right, sure. I Google mean, Stanford from really early on was, right. was all yeah, about let's, let's kind of make connections between this university 
and the broader technical community. I mean, at a time, it's hard to imagine now, but people were worried about a brain drain from this area of engineers and technical people to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. All right. So talk about what's in the archive. You said it's just a cornucopia. It goes back how, how long? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it goes back to Federal Telegraph and sort of even, bef you know, between the wars. Mm -hmm. And, well, let me tell you some of my favorite okay. collections All that right. we have there. Uh, so we have uh, Bill Hewlett's papers. We have an incredible collection of... Hewlett-Packard. Uh, yeah, from yeah. Hewlett-Packard. We have to define everyone yeah. for the okay. broader audience. Um, papers of Bob Noyce, who is mm -hmm. the co-founder of Intel, co-inventor mm -hmm. of the microchip. Incredible pictures, I think, from uh, a series of photographs taken in the 1980s at video game arcades. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing about these photographs is you look at them and there are a bunch of girls playing these video games. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of shows you, well, it wasn't happening. Yeah, it wasn't always this way. Um, letters that are back and forth between various people trying to start companies, you know, asking their parents <laughs> for a loan. Mm -hmm. um, and then much more current stuff, you know, screenshots from Second Life and all of this sort of thing that really kind of gives a feel for the look, the time, and honestly, like what it was like to be here. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're collecting also some of the papers of people who you might not think about, you know, people who worked on a manufacturing line, something mm -hmm. like that as well. So everything, just everything. Absolutely. And is this stuff dispersed everywhere? Is it, is it all over the country or is it, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Is it just, is it, is there another place where there, it has a repository? Because I know there's the Computer History Museum, obviously, which has a lot of stuff in their archives um, and a lot of machines actually, which is really Really kind of interesting. Yeah, so we are, uh, it's, it's, we're a really interesting hybrid because we're a research archive, but we're open to the public. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of journalists coming in and, you know, lawyers sometimes trying to figure out, wait a second, what, you know, what really are the origins here? Right. And yeah, we get stuff from actually all over the world. It tends to be, it's very interesting, it tends to be in basements. And we get mm -hmm. these often, it's after someone dies, we get a call from their heirs saying, I have this stuff of, you know, my dad's usually, do you want it? And mm -hmm. the answer, people are always surprised that the answer is yes, because you never know, you never, you never, ever know. And I mean, now, you know, there's a big question, which is, okay, all this stuff, there's, there isn't really as much paper anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So what's going to happen? You should come to my basement. <laughs> I think I have everything you want. I have the original AOL business plan. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll yeah. get it to you. All right. That would yeah. be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of the original internet companies' business plans, yeah, which that, is funny. That would and be great. And their press releases and everything else. That It's all on paper, and it's in my basement right now. It's fascinating. And I don't know. I haven't gone through it. I want to go through it first. Um, but it's really – it is. Everything was on paper, and now it isn't. So how do you deal with that? Like it's not – and then I want to hear about your favorite things. How do you do it? Because everything's not on paper now, and it's all on disks or in the ether or on Slack or right. whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, this this is just a huge, huge issue. I mean, Stanford's part of an initiative of a number of university consortia and the Library of Congress to figure out – what are we going to do about this? Because, you know, that paper in your basement was readable when it was made and mm -hmm. it's going to be readable 100 years from now if it as gets you preserve out it, of right. your basement right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. right. and kept safe. Uh, but it's almost impossible to even use, like, remember the Palm Pilot, you know? I mean, yeah. that just wasn't that long ago. How are we even going to do this? So there's been 
there are people thinking about this. Because they're in emails or in, they're in some server, Google yeah. or wherever they are, and maybe gone in some way. That's or exactly hard to right. find, actually. Or, yeah, exactly. Or it's the needle in a haystack where they're, you know, basically someone said to me that, you know, people used to file, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, but now we have millions and millions of emails and not, not a single one of them is filed. Or, or able to be found. Right, exactly. So this, it's an, actually another place where Stanford's been really cutting edge on developing means to for people eventually to be able to go through email but not, you know, pull up personal materials and right. such. It's, it's a really sticky wicket. Yeah, it's absolutely. One of the things that was interesting I remember doing with the Library of Congress a long, long time ago was they were trying to save certain early computer stuff, and I was working with them about it. And one of the things is they didn't have devices on which to play certain things. Like they had to have an old kind of com- different old computers that would play the medium, like floppy disks and things like that, which I, if you think about it, how would you now play a floppy disk? How would you now look at a floppy Disc. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually, there, there's a whole universe called forensic archiving and mm-hmm. it has to do with exactly this question. Mm-hmm. How do you get all of this back and how do you not corrupt it when you open it to look at it, then you've changed all the metadata around right. it. You know, I right. mean, it's a huge, huge issue. Right. Right. We got to go back to paper, I think. Do anything close? Yeah. You know, it's a lot, you can read paper forever and yeah. as long as there's no fire or, yeah. or bugs, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah. All right. So talk to me about your favorite things in the archive and then we'll get to the book in the next section. What, okay. So what what are some of the favorite things that are in there? Well, the the piece that I wrote about that I was I I was so excited to have found was a note uh, from I think it was from 1976, and it's from someone who is he had a printing business, and he has gone to the garage where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are trying to build the you know the first Apple computer. And he writes about how there are two guys, there are two young guys in a garage, you know, sounds fishy, watch out. And <laughs> I love that. And, and the reason I love it is one, I, I like mean, fishy. Yeah. It's, and you know what? They were fishy. Yeah, Let's be honest. It was, I mean, it was just such a strange idea mm-hmm. at the time. And, you know, so what's beautiful about things like that is one, that guy wrote that note, never thinking, like sometimes I think that venture capitalists walk around with like a, a stack of napkins and mm-hmm. they just write, you know, they meet with someone and then they write on it, oh, whatever's going to be huge. And then right. they put it away so that right. years yeah. later they can pull it out and say, right. I knew it, you know. Right. And that just wasn't the case here. Right. Um, and also just gives you a sense because this is totally true. In mm-hmm. the 70s, like the notion of going off and trying to do your own thing was still very new. Absolutely. Yeah, those entrepreneurs were basically the washouts who couldn't make it in sure. a real decent company. Right, absolutely. Yeah, they were the washouts, absolutely. And what else? What other things do you have? What else do I completely love in the archives? Well, I've told you about the video game portraits mm-hmm. that I love. Uh, there's a scrapbook of Robert Noyce's that mm-hmm. I love from mm-hmm. his childhood. He put it together, and it's a list of inventions that he wants someday to build. Wow. And um, on it, he says... I like inventing things. You can you can build something important that doesn't cost very much. Oh wow! And I love things that give oh, kind charming. of a glimpse in right. and and you know like the the lab reports and such that are coming out of these companies at a time, and you're just watching them. Yeah, sometimes you, you see, know the ending. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And, right. you, and you see these subject lines and they're things like vented frustrations or what am I doing here? And, mm-hmm. you know, and we've all been there. And there's, mm-hmm. there's something really wonderful about seeing that. Mm-hmm. That the people inventing the future were frustrated just like anybody else. Absolutely. They're running up against walls all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, a lot of these companies also have archives, right? They, some of them have their own. I know HP has some of that and some of the other companies. Do you work with those or do they bring those to you or, or what's the? 
how do you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a totally bespoke process. So mm-hmm. different companies, you know, we've worked with companies who want help setting up their archives. Mm-hmm. We have, well, for example, uh, when Steve Jobs went back to Apple, he really wanted to focus that company and focus it on the future. And so mm-hmm. they had a whole library and a project to start a museum. Mm-hmm. And that entire collection, which I think is something like 600 boxes, came to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, it happens in a, in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. So you got those boxes. Of yeah, we have jobs. Anything interesting in there? You know, it's so vast. There's some very, very interesting uh, videos and such, you mm-hmm. know, training and just sort of, it's, it's, ev- you can find so much, but you. Everything you, is you, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So what do you, what do you, do you what do you do proactively now uh, to, to get people like Snapchat or Google? Do you pick companies and say, well, we need your history. We need to, do yeah, you actually I mean, go there, out? There's a big educational process, um, mm-hmm. a big component, because these are places that are completely focused on the future. Mm-hmm. And very often what happens is it's only once an anniversary right, the is on the horizon, right. right, where they're like, what happened to all our stuff, right, yeah. you know? And and so that's a, that's a good time to talk to yeah, them. Yeah, that's why I have all the original, but they gave them to me and they're like, watch them for us. And they didn't forgot about that I had them. And so it's a really interesting, you know, I have quite a few of them. Like they just, they had them sitting at a desk or something like that. Uh, I'll never forget. They tried to give me at AOL the dino. They, there was one great moment at AOL where they all signed this dinosaur, which was Microsoft, and the whole company signed it. We're going to beat the dinosaur, and so everyone rushed up, and it's signatures of all the original employees of AOL. Wow! And they wanted to give me the dinosaur, and I was like, "It's a big piece of plywood shaped like a dinosaur. I don't have anywhere to put it." Like it was because they were like, "We we think it's going to get." I, I think Ted Leonsis has it. Someone has it. Mm-hmm. But it's a really, it's an important moment and has every signature, you know, or, or some of the graffiti at Facebook. I know they pulled out off the walls that they, it was very important graffiti for them. Um, and they pulled it off the walls and and put it into frames so they would have it. They had a sense of history there much mm-hmm. more so than other people. So it was interesting, like the physical stuff. Do you collect those things too, the physical? Yeah, we do have some of the physical stuff um, right. as well. Such as computers or yeah, I mean we have I, we have well actually as part of that Apple collection we have basically every piece of <laughs> hardware that you yeah. know they had developed up until that yeah time. you know Walt Mossberg has one you should ask him he's oh, got everything right? he's got it he's got a whole oh museum. yeah he would have quite a quite a treasure he trail. would have it at his office and he saved it he might have we might want to ask him because he's got almost every device ever made like in all the iterations of them which is interesting yeah. so but you also are doing that physical objects yeah yeah and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like hope- the first Star Tack, for example, and just and also just trying to, and, and it's not just that too. It's also the the manuals and such around right. it. Which I mean, to me now that that is not my personal interest. Like I'm really into the people, right, uh, and the stories. Right. But there are people who are are so fascinated. And how how did right. all this work? manuals? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. We're going to get into that more. And so, how many people do you have working on this at Stanford? How what, how big an initiative is it? Well, we're integrated in with the whole special collections team. So mm-hmm. it's it's probably. All said, I guess a couple dozen people um, that are trying to take care of this. Yeah, and 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 other collections, you know, across Stanford. Part of what makes this so very cool mm-hmm. is that at Stanford, people see this as 
part of a story of American history, part of a story of sort of international history. Yeah. And so that hundreds of years from now, it'll matter more. Exactly. And right. that it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. I think mm -hmm. that people think about, oh, computer history or history of technology is something mm -hmm. that just sort of like showed up. And I mean, mm -hmm. something that you learn very quickly is there's a reason that this happened here. There's mm -hmm. a reason that it happened when it did. Right. And we're able to kind of tell that story. Tell the story. Yeah, we've got the expertise across all these different fields. All right, we're going to get back. We're going to talk about the stories you have in your book. Uh, we're here with Leslie Berlin. She's a historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University and the author of a new book called Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. It's about seven exceptional men and women who were pioneers of today's technologies in the 1970s and early 80s. Today's show is brought to you by Simple Human. Their goal is to improve the way people go about day-to-day -day tasks, one innovative product at a time. They just sent me their latest product to try, and it's really cool. It's also a little freaky. It's touch-free motion sensor trash can that you can also control with your voice. If you've got a drippy mess of stuff you need to throw away fast or just want to toss a paper towel from far away, the Simple Human sensor can is for you. The can is tested to last more than 150,000 cycles. That's equal to 20 times a day for over 20 years. In other words, bring on the trash. You can use your own trash bags. You can get custom fit liners from Simple Human. I use them. They're fantastic. They're, they're stronger, neater, and they fit perfectly. You won't realize how much you enjoy using one of these until you have it. They're available as a single bin or with two compartments for recycling. And the Simple Human Sensor Can comes in five beautiful different finishes. Brushed, rose gold, white, black stainless, and dark bronze. Visit simplehuman.com to purchase your sensor can with voice. Enter the promo code DECODE at checkout to receive 15% off any of the sensor cans with voice. Again, use the promo code DECODE at simplehuman.com for a discount on your own voice control sensor can. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, guess who I talked to this week? I will tell you, Cenk Uger, also known as the CEO and main host of The Young Turks. These guys have been around uh, online, on TV, forever. They're the lefty answer to, right? Or I don't know how you describe them. Um, Cenk will tell you that he's very, very famous. Um, he would like more money for being famous, and he would like a little more respect, and we can talk all about that. It's cool. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with Leslie Berlin, the historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University, and she's the author of a new book called Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age, about seven exceptional men and women who were pioneers of today's technology in the 1970s and 80s. So tell me about this book. What was the impetus for this book and, and what you were trying to achieve? Yeah, with this book, I really wanted to... A, talk about more than just one person. My first mm -hmm. book uh, was a biography of Bob Noyce, mm -hmm. and that uh, he deserved a full biography. Mm -hmm. But it really was apparent to me that innovation is a, a team effort, right? Mm -hmm. It's a team sport. And so I wanted to be able to talk about uh, more than one person and also talk about people across a variety of industries. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to do this particular time period, the book starts in 69, mm -hmm. ends in 83, is that before this time, Silicon Valley was sort of like this obscure little place where it was gearhead engineers selling to gearhead engineers who used chips, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And within just a, a not even a dozen years, really, if you just add up the, the time, you know, the most activity, you had uh, the video game industry was born, personal computer industry was born, 
biotech, which no one talks about, biotech was born, I mean, right here. You know, Mm -hmm. modern venture capital took root. The first ARPANET transmission comes into SRI. And it's like you're watching the the big bang, you Mm -hmm. know? And it was so exciting to me. It reminds me of the Beatles and Mm -hmm. how 1963, they're doing Little Richard covers. And by 1970, they've completely transformed music and the broader culture. Mm -hmm. And also at that same time, you see the roots of things like the celebrity entrepreneur is really mm-hmm. born and also the real effort to uh, send people to Washington and try to promote the notion of tech as an important part of the economy. It's right. all happening during that time. And why, so talk about why that is. I want to hear about who you who you thought were the most exceptional people, these seven people, but why don't you list who they are, who they are and the, the people you are focused on? Yeah, sure. Uh, do you want just their names? Yeah, who, uh, and who they are. Okay, Um So one person is Bob Taylor. Bob Mm -hmm. Taylor is the guy who convinced ARPA, the Department of Defense, really to start the ARPANET that became the Internet. Then he ran the computer science lab at Xerox Park Mm -hmm. that uh, Steve Jobs visited and saw like the graphical user interface and Mm -hmm. other components for the first time. And then he went to DEC and was the head of the group that invented an electronic book Mm -hmm. and also AltaVista, one of his key Mm -hmm. researchers. So, I mean, the search engine engine. way before there were, way before Google. Yeah, it was the Um, search engine that wasn't Google. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the... And DEC was the computer company that wasn't Microsoft, I guess, right? No, more Apple, I guess. I'm trying to think. IBM. Yeah, DEC, DEC, definitely. DEC was yeah, not IBM. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny way to think of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, another person I uh, profile is Mike Markla. Mm-hmm. Mike was... Very important person. Yes, and who is really not well known at all. Most people know Mike as the investor uh, behind Apple. Mm-hmm. They usually don't even know that he owned a third of Apple with mm-hmm. Jobs and Wozniak. Yep, he did. And um, what interested me about Mike is that if you think about it, Jobs was 21 he had 17 months business experience. Mm-hmm. Wozniak didn't want to be an entrepreneur at all. He just wanted to be an engineer at HP. He had to kind of be dragged into starting Apple. And it was Mike Markla and the people from the chip industry that he brought in who made Apple from that little garage company with admittedly two geniuses, but still a tiny little idea into the youngest company. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They were the youngest company to hit the Fortune 500, and it's because of Mike Mm -hmm. and the people he brought in to help. Yeah, he was super interesting. Um, And, you know, someone who'd always been in the back, he wrote software under a a pseudonym, Johnny Appleseed. I mean, that's (laughs) that's how much of like a back-behind-the-scenes guy he was. Yeah. Um, I write about Sandy Kurtzig, who was the first woman to take a tech company public. Mm -hmm. She was a software entrepreneur at a time when software just, I mean, even Larry Ellison, when he started Oracle, talks about how he uh, went to the venture capitalist's offices and not only would they not talk to him, they would check his briefcase to make sure that he hadn't stolen business week on the way out. I mean, talk about something that sounded fishy. And here you had Sandy Kurtzig sort of doubly an outsider because she's software and she's a woman. When she said she was selling software, people thought she was selling lingerie. Oh, wow. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. and she did. And and she did, she started Ask, right, um, right. which and was the CEO of this company mm-hmm. and that she actually didn't start in a garage, but at her kitchen table, which right. I think is kind of a nice touch, yeah. you right. know. All right. Um, another person who I profile is Niels Ramers. And Niels was the person who at Stanford was a... a sort of a mid-level staffer who 
convinced the university that they ought to be able to to make some money and in the process get ideas out to the rest of the world by patenting the ideas from their their faculty and staff Staff and and students. students. Uh, Before Niels started what is now called the Office of Technology Licensing, in the previous 13 years, Stanford had gotten $3,000 total, 13 years, from their faculty and students' inventions. Now that number, thanks to this office, uh, is $2 billion. $2 billion. Um, And one of the first, actually, yeah, one of the very first ones that he patented was the idea for recombinant DNA. Mm -hmm. And so Niels's story blends into the story of Bob Swanson and the birth of Genentech and the Mm -hmm. biotech industry. And Swanson was sort of the business side of uh, the Genentech start. Uh, So another person is Fawn Alvarez. And Mm -hmm. Fawn is an incredible story of a woman who, when the book opens, she's 12 years old. She's picking plums uh, for pocket money in the bucolic haven of Cupertino, California. and Fruit yards. Yeah, exactly. She gets a job on the manufacturing line at Rome, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that a lot of people don't know, that there Mm -hmm. used to be factories in Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley. Someone had to build the computers and the chips, and, and that all happened here. And then she moves off of the manufacturing line and eventually ends up as uh, the chief of staff, effectively, to the president of IBM Rome when Rome is acquired by IBM. Mm-hmm. And that is a career path that doesn't really exist anymore. And, you know, she was able to buy a house. Mm-hmm. She had the same benefits as other, even when she was on the manufacturing line. They, um, they didn't get stock options, but they could buy stock very cheaply. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the Valley's history that's just gone. Yeah. And the final person I profile is Al Alcorn, who is the designer of Pong. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I really wanted to make sure that I just had a straight-up engineer. And Al is a super interesting story. I wanted to make sure that these were actual stories, that these were narratives. I mean, I... Narrative I, is critical. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted I wanted them to read, to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the mm-hmm. people actually get somewhere different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those those were my criteria. I wanted... They and had Pong, to be, explain Pong. Oh, it was Pong. A game. <laughs> it was Pong. a game. Pong was a video first game. video game. Yeah, and really, it was the, the first popular video game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you look at it now and it's sort of like a rectangle hitting a square, yep. or, you know, yeah, across forever. It's supposed to be a ping pong net. Yeah, it was fun. But, I played it a lot when I was a kid. And it was, it was totally radical because most people in the world at that point had only... They, the notion of interacting with your TV was completely... Utterly. Yeah, you yeah. no nobody Pong did it. Was the first thing. Yeah, people wanted to know how did the networks know that they had moved the paddle so that they could you know transmit that. It was right. it's just it's it's hard now because we're here mm-hmm. to dial it back and imagine what it was like sure. at the beginning. Sure, it's like not understanding a car before you saw one or a plane or anything else. Exactly. Um, and so you told these narratives, and your and your goal was to to tell these stories. That that what, what was was there a, a story that was common in all the narratives or was there something that that knit them together or they're all different uh, they were they were certainly different different I, stories but yeah was there I felt like there was together? a com- there was a common theme which I that I would describe as these these were people who were 
audacious for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, They were persistent, which I think people don't necessarily recognize often needs to come with audacity. It's Mm -hmm. it's easy to go blazing, you know, out with guns firing, but then you have to kind of keep it up. And they were doing it for a purpose. Um, They were not sort of the, I want to blow things up for the sake of blowing them up, or even honestly, I want to blow things up for the sake of making money. Money. It was... Uh, I want this idea to reach the public. I want computers to be able to talk to each other. I want everybody to be able to have the power of uh, electronics at their hands. You know, mm-hmm. these these were actually, there were quite lofty goals mm-hmm. at play here. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was an important unifying theme as well. And what about the sense of place? Because it's all in the same place. You talked about all these things were invented in one place during one period. What was, you know, it's... People talk about the Renaissance or wherever something big happens in one place. What was it about here that mattered? Yeah. Besides Stanford University, and I do think it's critically important. Yeah, Stanford was critically important. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that there were sort of three things at play here. One was it was just plain old good-fashioned luck mm-hmm. that William Shockley, the co-inventor of the transistor, his mother lived here, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be near his mother. And so the transistor arrives at a time... That is, it's 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 ripe for change, and I'll get to that in a second. But the transistor is an in, incredibly powerful and flexible mm-hmm. little tool. It's like the tiny grain of sand inside a pearl, and kind mm-hmm. of everything that has come since you can think of as a layer of the pearl having been built on it. So you take this incredibly powerful technology and you drop it into a place that on the one hand, of course, is fully integrated into the most advanced economy on the planet at Mm -hmm. the time. And at the same time, itself really is still rural. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to basically custom fit an ecosystem around this technology that, Mm -hmm. that was really sort of designed to, for entrepreneurship and to promote it. And, and the third thing that I would really point to is the culture out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was this particular time was the counterculture exactly, and that really that sort of openness um, and rebellion and. It, it was a very potent combination to stick that technology in those people's hands. And because they were so against the war, most of them, it, you really had people who normally would have gone to the DOD or to defense contractors because they're experts in microelectronics or graphics mm-hmm. are suddenly freed up uh, to be playing with this technology in a and way making that... making things. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so those things all combined. And I mean, at this point now, we've got 40 some odd years of... Uh, ongoing perpetual motion machine happening here such that you've really got quite the finely tuned organism. Right, that it is. That, that it's the, it's a question of place and the tonality and the culture and the mentality and then the money, the venture capital. As you said, the invention of modern venture capital really did happen here. That's right. Um, did you include a venture? You didn't include a venture capitalist in this list. You I know, I didn't as a separate person, but mm-hmm. there's certain people. Don Valentine actually exactly, funds yeah. Atari and he funds Apple and mm-hmm. he's one of these old microchip guys uh, Bert McMurtry's all over it, Kleiner Perkins backs, uh, mm-hmm. Genentech and Tandem. And so while they aren't one, I don't have one who's a main one, the same way actually with the attorneys. There's the attorneys, yeah. yeah. Or um, the PR and marketing people. So Larry Sensini appears in this book, although he's not 
profiled Regis mm-hmm. McKenna is super important, PR and he he is there and Intel and mm-hmm. Genentech oh, actually. True. I mean, he the same everywhere. guy introduced the world to the microprocessor, the personal computer, and biotech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, and actually, he's the guy who um, came up with the idea of let's send tech execs to DC rather than lobbyists mm-hmm. and sort of put a face on this technology so that we get more funding and different things. Yeah, that we want. and yeah, exactly. And plus, I mean, this tech, it's it's. It's still really hard to understand, but imagine what it was like back yeah, then. To explain what this is and yeah. make it a critical part. Yeah, Regis McKenna, you're right. I didn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, so, and and the idea, one of the things that's really striking is you're not you're, you're not profiling people that are so well known. You could have gone to Jobs and uh, all the early. Um, obviously, Bob Noyce was very important, but there's there was a list of higher level people that you didn't look at. And why do you think it's important to look at these other people? I agree with you 100. percent By the way, I'm not arguing with you. I just what do, what what was your goal in that? Yeah. So my goal in that, I, I, I actually wonder if the seed was planted at a party I was at a long, long time ago, and there was uh, the COO of a company with a very famous CEO, mm-hmm. and the COO started singing this little song that and the words were, I did all the work, he got all the credit. <laughs> and, uh, and That's I a little song if, I've heard. <laughs> I wonder if that planted a seed because the people who get the credit often deserve credit and right. they never deserve all the credit and no. the honest ones would be the first one to tell you that they mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. And I think that growing a company is such a complex business and I really yeah. wanted to Cohesive be able to... Cohesive teams are critical. Exactly. That's exactly right. And there are people who switch things a different way just by being there, like Mike Markle. I think you're right. Like it wouldn't happen that way without his critical influence in different ways right. or any of these people, you know, that you talked about. I mean, and because it also jumped, one of the things about Silicon Valley, things jump off from other things. Like Pong jumped to something else, jumped to the idea of interaction. So it, it introduced that idea. And yeah. so there's a lot of ideas that look like failures or have had their time but haven't finished yet. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that actually points to, just as an aside, the importance of basic research, mm-hmm. um, which is you never know exactly what's going to end up coming right. out of these different operations. Or the, that the, or I was talking to someone the other day, they were making fun of Google Glass. I said, it's an important invention. You don't understand. It's not today, but later there's going to be a facial thing on your face that you will do AR on through, but not that one, just not that one, which is interesting. A lot of the failures, I mean, I know it's sort of a trope of Silicon Valley that failure is a good thing, but I don't necessarily think that's a good thing, but the conceptual ideas are a good thing. It's not the necessarily the product. They just failed. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I think so much has to depend on, you know, why did you fail? Right. Exactly. <laughs> did yeah, you fail because you're an idiot? You yes. Know, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but, All right. When we get back, I want to talk about some of the uh, Silicon Valley now as opposed to then and, and what you what are your thoughts on how the evolving from these people and do you think the people today are reflective of what was originally happened or perhaps a mutated version or, or where it's going we're here with Leslie Berlin she is the archivist at Stanford University for the Silicon Valley Archives and she's written a book called The Troublemakers about people from the 70s and early 80s um, who had uh, been critical uh, people you might not know about been critical to the development of Silicon Valley Today's show is sponsored by GoCD, an open-source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD, your team can release software more frequently, consistently, and reliably. Enjoy advanced traceability by visualizing your complex workflows from end to end. GoCD is open-source and free to use. Professional support and enterprise add-ons are available from ThoughtWorks. For out-of-the-box continuous delivery, visit gocd.org recode. This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. 
and I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. We know that uh, people are using mobile to research and transact more than ever before, which we've talked about. Um, what's the future of mobile commerce and how does MParticle help its uh, retailer customers like Overstock, Lily Pulitzer, and Jet.com? So the classic notion of a person moving through the funnel is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. People may start researching a company's product on their laptop, subscribe to that brand's email newsletter a few days later, get an email which they open on their phone, download the app and complete the purchase. You know, so right there, just trying to map the customer journey, you need to capture data from four or five systems. So brands need to create uh, consistent and personalized experiences across all these devices and systems. And so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, mm-hmm. create a unified view of the customer, and then in real time, sync that data out to all the various marketing and analytics tools that the company may use in order to create these experiences. So people are doing very different things all the time. Absolutely. Dynamic as they are using all these devices. For sure. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks. We're here with Leslie Berlin, the historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University. She's also the author of a new book called Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. Um, what did you call it, troublemakers? I mean, because they just made trouble or what was the... I like a troublemaker, as you know. Yeah, I, I, I meant it with all of the positive connotations mm-hmm. of um, risk-taking and mischief-making. And I think that these people were making trouble because the existing structures just didn't, they couldn't do what they needed to do. And I think Mm -hmm. anytime that you're kind of pushing through a barrier, you are making trouble for everyone around you because, you you know, you do leave a little bit of disaster in your wake sometimes. Sure, absolutely. And do you imagine that still exists today? Let's let's take a, a bright line from these people. What What is the good parts of what has remained from this beginnings? Because it was a counterculture movement. It was a, it was a, a, people that were different. It was a more tolerant community, essentially allowing differences, but it seems to have morphed into something else. There's now we're in the middle of sexual harassment things, lack of diversity, uh, huge companies that have huge influence over the whole country and maybe aren't using their power quite so benignly. Um, so can you talk about that concept, the idea of, of what it's evolved into? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> I, right. mean, I think that some of the good that has maintained is the spirit of risk-taking, mm-hmm. uh, the, the welcoming of outside perspectives. I mean, The way you see this most clearly uh, is in the role of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when when this book opens, it's 1969, and in the past 20 years, the population of of Silicon Valley has tripled. And you basically had the equivalent of a new person moving into Silicon Valley every 15 minutes Mm -hmm. for 20 years straight. Wow. And so you have this constant refresh of new people. They're coming in, they're younger, they're better educated than anyone who's been there before. And at that point, they're coming from other parts of the U.S. But by the end of the time that I'm writing about, they're coming from around the world. And we're running, you know, about two, two and a half times uh, the percent of the population is immigrant as the rest of the country. And, you know, a critical issue. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, at this point, we are at two thirds of the people who are working in the tech industry right now between the ages of 25 and 44, two thirds of the men, actually 76% of the women Mm -hmm. were born outside of the United States. Hello, pay attention, Donald Trump. It's, I mean, it's, 
it's yeah, whenever people ask me what's the biggest threat to the valley, I uh, that's always my first 100%. answer. Yeah, 100%. And so I think that openness has been an important thing we've maintained. Something that I really have been scratching my head about a lot, I genuinely don't understand this, is how the same place that can be so open to immigrants has been so closed to women. Mm-hmm. I really don't get it. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it I, I'm not understanding, you know, de- I'd be curious to know if you have well, any I think, thoughts well, on I that. Well, I think we just had a guest on talking about the idea that the, the, a lot of these computer labs were like this and they've just now become the most powerful people. And so they had that mentality and it just carried out into the broader part. Because, I, you know, I have my saying that I always say that it's, uh, they, they think they're a meritocracy, they're in their meritocracy. So they're super comfortable. It's a very common human trait um, where you are comfortable with people that look like you or, or act like you and you're much more, I don't buy the socially awkward and they mm-hmm. can't get along with women crap that's crap yeah um, i mean the, the act like you for sure but a lot of these people they don't necessarily look like you like right they're people coming from other parts of the world right yeah I don't, it's i i like the um meritocracy yeah i've heard you say that yeah but i think it's know. not just that not just the white but it is if you look at the numbers they pretty mm-hmm. much are that especially in the critical engineering jobs um but but if there's people from asia or india or very asia's india's in asia but asian or uh um, or other parts of the world, it's really interesting that they also do fit the mantra of a nerdy tech. It, it's the same person, essentially. And it's not necessarily uh, color, but you don't see, say, a lot of African-Americans. Right. You don't see a lot of um, uh, of older people. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, a real, it's, it's not just women, but it's, it's sort of, a, it's almost a hostility towards women. You can see it, just these stories coming out, just one after the next. Um, I do think it, it is because of a tolerance for juvenile behavior mm-hmm. and, and, and celebrating uh, perpetual youth. Um, and not, not in the Hollywood sense, although that's certainly, it's a, just a different iteration of it. It's the idea of young and grow and break and who cares as a toddler kind of things. And if you let toddlers run things, you're going to get what you got, you know, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, what's so interesting is I opened the book with uh, Steve Jobs's 2005 commencement address at Stanford, which I mean, it's justly famous. It's been seen, you know, tens of millions of times. And there's a a part of it that I think people kind of skip over, which is he talks about how when he was first fired from Apple, Mm -hmm. he called David Packard, he called Bob Noyce, and he said he apologized for dropping the baton. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of notion that there's a handoff of a baton from one generation to the next to the next. And I mean, Jobs didn't talk about it, but Zuckerberg has talked about how Jobs was important to him. Mm -hmm. And Google founders, same Mm -hmm. thing. And I think that, um, you know, this notion of what's derisively called adult supervision, Mm -hmm. uh, the people who are smart, I mean, Zuckerberg went and talked to Bob Taylor. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, The people who are smart are leaning on the guidance of the people who came before. Right. And I think something interesting about your meritocracy point uh, that uh, to sort of talk about what's good and what's bad, I mean, what we're seeing there is to me, the shadow side of Silicon Valley's great strength, which yeah, is the networks. Right. Um, the the sort of for a long time, these networks have completely transcended industries. They've they've mm-hmm. transcended companies, and it's just been you know this is like, so the, the PayPal ma- mafia is a great example. There was mm-hmm. one of these at Xerox Park, sure. where these groups of people work together, and then they 
disperse, right? General magic was one of them. General magic is a great example. Mm -hmm. And what we see now is this really important question of, okay, but what if you're not in the network? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, those networks are so powerful, but then how how do you, how How do do you you get in? Right. Or how do you create new ones that'll give you just as much power and access? Exactly. And how do you convince the people on the inside of the networks of the value of opening them up because data does not, I mean, for such a data-driven place, it's very strange. And it's been shown again and again and again that increasing right. diversity of all sorts creates yes. more valuable companies. I think one of the issues is that it's not, it is malevolent, but it's not malevolent misogyny that's so obvious uh, as has been in other industries where it's just real mis- misogynistic. It's misogyny in a very pleasant way clothing. Like it's, I'm a nice guy. I don't mean to do this. And then what happens is a lot of the men have no clue what's going on with the, with the predator types and, and don't seem to care. Don't, don't, don't take the time to care. When we did a lot of the coverage we did recently on sexual harassment, a lot of, even going back to the Ellen Pout trial, a lot of every woman, I say this all the time, every single woman had at least six stories in Silicon Valley, every one of them. And they range from the very microaggressions to you should smile more, don't you look pretty today, to really serious sexual harassment. Very few of the good men knew it. Either the women didn't tell them or they, and I don't know where, I always try to think when I think historically, where does that come from? Um, they just didn't, they, in, they were insular to this group and therefore why would they care what they thought? You know, because they were the original Apple had a lot of women on that team. Susan Kerr, a whole bunch of people. You know, there were tons of important right. women there. Um, and then they went. Like now, you look at that. Apple doesn't have a, a lot of women at the top in the really influential positions, but certainly did at the beginning. Um, so what ha- what occurred? Did motherhood occur? Did like they couldn't keep up? Did it did misogyny? You know, it's it's really hard to to wonder. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking just the other night um, with Sandy Kurtzig, who's one of the people in the mm-hmm. book, and she was saying that in her day. The, the sexism was just overt. Yeah. I mean, she was the CEO of a company and people would ask right. her to bring them coffee and, yeah. and, you know, she would just flat out be told um, because she was started out doing manufacturing software, a, a woman can't do manufacturing software. Mm-hmm. She felt like she knew what she was up against. And right. I think that, of, of course, the opportunities for women now, I mean, I believe are better than mm-hmm. they've ever been in right. this particular industry. They're not where they need to be, obviously. Right. Um, it, but I think this pernicious sort of... Um, ideology and actually almost unthinkingness is mm-hmm. something that uh, is different and in some ways harder to combat. Yeah, absolutely. You can't like face it head on. And and when you complain, you seem crazy. It's almost like a gaslighting of mm-hmm. the situation. You know what I mean? You're like, I'm sure it's there. How does it end up in this way? Um, you're just imagining it. We have lots of opportunities for women. And you're like, do you? Do they get promoted? You know what I mean? It's a really interesting thing. There's all kinds of solutions presented. But I do think it goes back to the history of who started it. Like it just, they just hold on to this mythology. And I think that's the problem with history. There's history and then there's mythology of history, which I think, you know, there's all these tropes in Silicon Valley from the beginning days of what they think they were. It's like the tropes around the United States of America. We always, oh, we're this independent people. And then we leave out the slavery. We leave out the brutality. We leave out the... You know, there's a really great Ta-Nehisi Coates essay about this just recently. We leave out the parts that are, we're very good at leaving out the inconvenient parts of, of our history, which I think is important. Um, is that hard when you're a historian, when you come across sort of negative stuff around the people that you're depicting? 
uh, I think you can't do the job if that's going to be hard mm-hmm. for you. I mean, mm-hmm. you as a journalist have yes, but historians exactly have papered over thing. certain things. A lot of historians have tried to paper over. Well, over. sure. I mean, especially if you're if you're taking on something as huge as trying to understand, you know, the entire roots of why something happened, you have to pick an argument, and mm-hmm. sometimes tracing that argument out mm-hmm. means that you're gonna leave aside things that aren't, you know, directly contributing one way or another to mm-hmm. it. But I think this is where the the paper record is so yeah. important. It's, right. um, it's, it's, it's right there in black and white, or in this case, you know, it's right there on video mm-hmm. is, is where we're really catching it now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did those, tra- how do you gen- translate that when it's video? And again, at more and more, like, there are probably really important Snapchats. I'm certain of it. Like, right? And right. there have to be, or texts. Or something like that. I bet there's super important texts going on. I mean, I, I you know, I have, I always was think, I, I think about it now, 20 years later, but I, I didn't do texts, but I did emails and, and, and then later texts with like Mark Andreessen or Reed Hoffman. And I'm like, should I save these? Because most of them are like, did you see that movie? Or, you know what I mean? Some are right. so mundane, but some of them are like, are you selling Netscape? Why are you selling Netscape? You know what I mean? Like, right. or something like that. And I, and I, always, I've been vaguely aware and then never do anything about it. Cause I know they're, they're important at the time, but then don't preserve them. Well, I mean, I think that one of the problems that kind of holds things up is that people seem to think that they have to sort through like, right. okay, I'm going to go through and cherry pick out all of the, right. and that is actually the job of the historians, first right. of all, to right. figure out. And plus that sort of like, did you see that movie kind of thing gives you the context right, right, in right. which you can kind of talk about 100%. these relationships. 100%. So it's really important. Yeah, You know, years ago when I was at the library, when I was working at the Washington Post, I, and I understood that these people were going to be important, I wanted to do interviews with all of them now, then, 20 years, like Mark Andreessen then, Steve Case then. And then I wanted to say, well, then we'll do them later. Like, but then we'll have young Mark Andreessen on video or right. young like Jim Barksdale. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then later we'll have it. Um, I do think that often about some of the interviews we've done at uh, All Things D 15 years back. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they are an archival treasure trove someday. I do think about that. Like someday people are going to watch those and, and if, uh, and if they, and right now News Corp owns a lot of them, but hopefully they'll give them up. But um, they are, they're like, they're like Steve Jobs over the course of his most productive years interview, the only interviews he did. So there, there's something very valuable in that. Absolutely. It's like a time-lapse photograph, right. you know, and you right. watch someone learning and not just learning how to present themselves, but learning what they're about. Right. And also lying. He lied about the phone. I'm not going to make a phone. What? Like in the next year, oh, I lied about making a phone. Like it's great, like because you have him actually lying about not doing a phone on the record, you know, in a in a video thing. So it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, and same thing with photographs and things like that. Do you spend a lot of time on photographs or? Yeah, the photographs are are are. A, a complete treasure trove in part mm-hmm. because they show you what things looked like around right. them. Like very often I'll, yeah. I'll look at a picture and I really don't care who the person is in the picture. It's like, oh, wait a second. You know, like I remember seeing the, a picture of Mike Markla in mm-hmm. his office at Apple and I don't remember what, I remember he looked a little bit like John Denver. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, that's that. But, um, but you know, what the main thing in I the Rocky Mountain is, High days. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. But there's nothing on his desk. There's nothing hanging on the wall behind him. There's sort of a file cabinet and there's a coffee maker. Right. And that's it. And that sort of thing gives you so Some much. similitude. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. You totally get it. Right. Um, I mean, photographs were also really frustrating because so often they include 
people you don't know, you know, who they are. Yeah, so are, yeah. um, I know Stanford in the past has has had events where basically you invite people to come tell you who they who are these people who are these people you know, and what did they do yeah there's one photograph I'll never forget I hope you will put it in your archive is one of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates together when we did the interview and Gates did not want to do the photo just didn't. I mean, it, he did eventually, but it was hard to get them to take a photo together. They had some issues that day in, in their history, essentially. And and one of the things that appealed to them was Walt and I were like, this will be for history in a hundred years. This is the photo um, that they're going to, you were together. Like you're the two greatest, you know, one of the two greatest people in the history of tech and you need to have a photo together. And it was really funny. I think that really appealed. That's what got him to do it. I think was like this, you'll be dead and this will be the photograph, but nobody will know what they were saying before they took that picture, except for me and Walt. Right. And the PR people, because they were arguing, you know what I mean? Right. But, and you could, and if you knew it, you could see just a little bit of like, in the in the smile, but it was really interesting. So you, they tell a story without telling a story, which I think was interesting. That's right. And Stanford's actually in the process of developing the technology so that people can annotate uh, mm-hmm. things online. Uh, you right. know, it, we're still a little ways out yeah. from that, but people will be able to like say, a Wikipedia kind of thing. Yeah, but but actually, the image and maybe do it through a voice recording or right. something like when that. When I was taking this picture, this is what I remember. Exactly. Right? I'd love to do that. Like, yeah, they were be arguing. So cool. yeah. FYI, they really were arguing over something. Um, but lastly, I want to finish up on what the lessons that you've learned from doing this and, and what the lessons we can have today, given looking backwards at history. You know, when you look back at history, you can learn a lot about what you're doing for going forward. And what do you think the key things that people should keep in mind? Yeah. So especially during this fraught time. Yeah. Uh, the, the first one is that, uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Mm -hmm. And, uh, very biblical of you. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I mean, you can act, actually, people can see this anytime if they go past Facebook, mm-hmm. where if you've ever wondered, why is it that the Facebook sign changes all the time? The answer is that there's a huge piece of vinyl that is literally bungee corded around the front of the sign for Sun Microsystems. Microsystems. They kept it, Mark kept there. it there, yeah. And he kept it there specifically because I checked with them. <laughs> yeah, it's he true. kept it there he to remind that. people mm-hmm. that, you know, this, this can all go away. It will go away. And it, not can, it will. And that's, I mean, it's such a lesson mm-hmm. that you've, you've, you know, I mean, Andy Grove, right? Only the paranoid survive. And kind you don't of concept. survive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and, you know, change yeah. is just sort of coming on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the second thing that I think is really important to bear in mind is this notion that, I mean, Silicon Valley is most interesting to me because it has been wave after wave after wave of different technologies coming up here. I mean, mm-hmm. there have always been, think of Detroit, there have been regions that are built around a technology at full stop. But here it's been sort of like, we're chips. No, we're, we're computing. No, mm-hmm. we're biotech. No, we're video. And now we're in cloud. Now we're doing networking. Now we're doing mobile. AR, now, VR. Yeah, exactly. And AI, you know, it's all just sort of built on top. And that um, in part is due to, uh, for my money, two things. One is this baton pass concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two is the influx of new ideas from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I think those are, that's very important uh, yeah. to yeah. bear in mind. So last question, is the past prologue? Uh, That's a Stuart question for a historian. Yeah, I mean, the the past. No, uh, the the past is so deeply interwoven into everything that we do and are that we don't even recognize it. And it mm-hmm. takes a superhuman feat of self awareness to say to yourself. 
I'm keeping what's good and I'm changing, you know, what isn't. Work. And I mean, it's, you know, in these fraught times, it's really important to recognize you have to physically and intellectually wrest yourself out of those the grips. Yeah. Out of the present. And when you think about sort of, we had Eric Weiner from the Geography of Innovation. Um, this will pass. The, the next place might be China or something like that. What is the, the, the cycle of this innovation? Or can they keep it here for good? Well, I, th- I mean, I think what we've seen already is that there are plenty of other tech regions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just... Still not Silicon Valley. No, no. And But I think that Silicon Valley at this point wouldn't exist without those other regions mm-hmm. in place. So I think that we have to change the model a little bit in terms of feeling like it's it a zero-sum game. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. they're going to, there are and there will continue to be these uh, regions. And I think the winner is going to be whoever can be most attractive to the people who are most likely to be the innovators. Right, which will be hard. It's really interesting. It's sort of, I have a, I have a theory of everything called Babylon was. Like, Babylon used to be important. Right. It was, you know, kind of thing. And I think it's, people here should keep that in mind. Like, how that, how, how easily it is, can slip away, essentially. Or it just does. It just does by lack of openness, lack of tolerance, lack of diversity, those are always always the things that end up killing these innovative cultures. Although the government can do a good job at yeah. killing it too. Yeah. I mean, I think that people really underestimate how important mm-hmm. the government has been to the rise and ongoing success yep. of Silicon Valley. Everything That's from really stuff that we don't take that we totally take for granted, like generally speaking, and we hope it continues, the rule of law, mm-hmm. you know, clean yeah. water. This this is just stuff that we don't even think about. But mm-hmm. honestly, it puts us on third base relative to most other countries. Right. Uh, and then there have been all sorts of legislation that's passed, changes in rules, decisions not to change rules that mm-hmm. that have ended up paying out really, really well for the tech industry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we can't forget no. that, you know, we have this notion that everyone, that the, the valley is the result of individual effort. And, and of course it is, but that is predicated on a, a whole system that, that mm-hmm. is... Yep. is you know, needs to be maintained and recognized and and course corrected when it's going off. Right. So what can the government do? What can the government do now? I'm trying, you know, I've been thinking about this just like everybody else, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what I think we can't do is start saying, uh, you know, we're going to charge these companies with the responsibility of, say, determining what is real, what is fake, what is, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't see how that's going to work. I do think there's some validity to these questions around are these companies functioning more and more like utilities? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's you know something yeah. that if the answer to that is yes, then there are ways to act. My latest thing is that I've decided that we as consumers uh, and citizens need to be more responsible yep. for what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking that we need one way for us to at least begin to get a slight hold of what is happening to our data that is then being fed into these yeah. algorithms, AI and these neural networks is, uh, and this is so small. Do you remember how credit cards used to be that you'd get your statement mm-hmm. and then buried deep in the fine print, it would tell you if you pay your minimum amount, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to pay forever. This is called compound interest. And mm-hmm. now there's this little, there's big letters in, on your credit card right. statement. It yeah. says if you only pay the minimum amount, you're going to end up owing three times. 
I would love to see something like that for terms of service that basically said, if you click this box, you are saying that we can collect, you know, the following information about you and we're going to use it in this way. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be making some conscious and sometimes difficult decisions around, okay, am I okay being the product or not? Right. That's a very good, very good thing to end on. Leslie Byrne, this has been fascinating. I think you should run Silicon Valley, frankly. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show and it was great talking to you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with people like Ray Dalio, Tim O'Reilly, and Susan Wojcicki. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of the questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. And thanks also to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They sell those ads so you can listen to this show for the low, low price of free. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hbe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes.